coming up on this week's podcast. I have a difficult time getting over this. The grace is there for me. The mercies are fresh at that moment. God would like nothing better than to have me come back to him. But I think I have trouble getting over the hurt to my own pride that I felt, that I couldn't handle, that I did it again. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Stephen Coleman with today's message. We did finish this series that, that Justin has done for us on the book of Joshua and on transition. And, and the uh, people of Israel, as they came up out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, and then finally were poised, ready to go in the promised land, were taken by Joshua then, a transition to a new leader, uh, into the promised land there. These mentoring relationships are fascinating. Many people who uh, turn out to be great folks and, uh, and achieve great things often have mentors. The, um, one of the founding fathers that maybe you haven't heard too much about, George Mason. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, heard of him. I grew up in Virginia, so we got a dose of that in Virginia history. But George Mason is kind of an interesting guy. Uh, one of the things that I think makes him outstanding, one of the ways you know him best, even if you've never heard from him, is that second paragraph in the Declaration of Independence. You see, George Mason was a mentor to Thomas Jefferson. He was about 18 years older. Incidentally, George Mason was also a neighbor of George Washington. He was about eight years older than George Washington, and George Washington considered him his mentor as well. But that paragraph that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and I won't embarrass myself and try to do the rest, but it goes on. That second paragraph is largely George Mason's that he wrote in, um, and, and Thomas Jefferson uh, picked up on it and learned the lessons from that. Well, we have another mentoring relationship here. We've already talked about Moses and Joshua in the last seven weeks, and that transition. We have another transition in the New Testament, and we're going to take a look at, at the transition of the ministry of the New Testament churches in the first century from Paul to Timothy, and we're going to look at that in the, through the eyes of the book of 2 Timothy. So you can turn there if you'd like. But let's start by understanding his mentor a little bit, Paul. Paul was a remarkable character. He had an amazing career. He spent the first 25, 30 years of his life uh, as a devout Jew. He was went off at age about 14 or 15 to, to the school that was run by Gamaliel, who was one of the outstanding uh, Jewish teachers and rabbis of his age. And Paul was mentored there and uh, became a Pharisee, uh, one of the, the sect that, was, uh, that would um, 
that had a great deal of energy around preserving God's word. They were the ones that were largely responsible for that 400 silent years between the Old Testament and New Testament, making sure that that the scriptures were maintained and and preserved and that the faith survived. Uh, During Jesus' day, we only know them from sort of a negative connotation because they ended up being a major obstacle uh, in, in the life of the Lord. They lost sight of God and were focused on the structure and the religion that they had built up in the land. But Paul was one of these folks, and with zeal, he defended the faith and fell right in line with the activities in that first century of persecuting the church, chasing down followers of Jesus and having them jailed. Well, he was converted a few years after the beginning of the church through a direct intervention by God himself. And uh, he became a believer on the road to Damascus and then spent more than 30 years uh, traveling as a missionary, planting churches. He visited scores of cities, over three missionary journeys. Uh, Who knows how many churches were planted, dozens that we know of. He also was followed around and persecuted. The Jews were determined to kill him. He had at one point 40 Jews that vowed to not eat or drink until they saw him dead. We don't know the fate of those folks, but that was many years before Paul died. You know, he was scourged three times by the Romans. Three times was he beaten with rods by the Romans. Five times the Jews gave him the the penalty of the 40 lashes, 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes. He was shipwrecked three times. He says he spent a night and day in the deep, uh, persecuted from city to city. In Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. And then we read that he got back up and went back into the city, even though he was stoned to the point that um, they said, oh, he's a goner, he's dead. Paul did all this because of his intense desire to see the gospel spread and see people have an opportunity to uh, receive eternal life. Now, this danger and the troubles that he was willing to go through was not uh, was something that Timothy saw firsthand. You see, Timothy apparently was raised in Lystra, where Paul was stoned and left for dead on his first missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, uh, Paul... Uh, had a chance to get to know Timothy, who um, who was a young man at this point. He was well regarded by the the local church there, and he joined Paul's troop. And as the years went on, uh, Timothy became perhaps the the key assistant to Paul and the person that Paul trusted perhaps the most. There are several that Paul spoke highly of. Timothy was in that group. I'm not aware of anyone that Paul knew, that knew Paul more intimately and that Paul trusted more. He sent him on different occasions to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Corinth, and the church at Ephesus to straighten out problems, to be Paul's representative, his emissary there. And he wrote when he was writing to, Paul wrote when he was writing to the church at 
at Philippi, he said, I have, uh, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered when I receive news of you. I have no one else like him who takes a general interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son of the Father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Well, 2 Timothy was written about 68 A.D., and uh, that would be uh, 30-some years after Paul started his ministry, over 20 years since Timothy joined the group. And Paul's writing to Timothy, who was probably in Ephesus at this time, and he urged him a couple of times in this letter to come as quickly as possible uh, to see him, uh, because Paul knew he was at the end of his time on earth, the end of his ministry. We don't know how Paul died. So we don't know if, if execution was part of it or uh, simply succumbing to the horrible conditions of the Roman jail. After all, Paul was uh, in his 60s at this point. And that's where Paul was in the context here. You know, there's notes of sadness in this book if you read it. There's a, a, even a little sense of melancholy. But on a close read, there's an emphasis on reminders about who God is and what God has provided. See, Paul was setting Timothy up for a transition, just like uh, that transition to Joshua had its difficulties. Moses gave Joshua instruction. God met with Joshua, gave him instructions, as we, re- as we heard about. Uh, here, Paul is pouring out his heart to Timothy. Once Timothy comes so he can see him, but you get the sense as you read this letter that this may be the uh, one set of things that, that Timothy's going to hear from Paul for the last time. And, and there's a focus on things that uh, God has provided as important resources for Timothy. It's also a number of things that Paul writes and, and talks about what he would like to see Timothy do. And we'll get to those next week. But for this week, uh, let's take a look at a couple of the things that Paul uh, writes. You know, he starts off this letter like every other letter, grace and peace to you, um, in the Lord. But this notion of grace comes up in this letter more often than that. If you look in chapter 1 and verses 8 and 10, he describes grace. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul says a real mouthful here, including that our salvation is not something that we worked for at all or anything that we achieved. Grace is hard to define. A lot of theologians will say, well, it's unmerited favor. That always leaves me feeling a little short. You know, grace is not something we experience or have a great example of outside of God himself. It's really a unique kind of thing to have someone uh, provide benefit, provide um, uh, love and forgiveness with no strings attached, with uh, 
that we don't have to earn, that we don't have to maintain. He's done it all. Paul says in his other writings, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. Paul, Paul also identifies grace as something that was given to us before time. Now, what does that mean? What is the purpose for, for mentioning that? Uh, what, what, a, uh, what an incredible thing to talk about. You know, it puts an exclamation point on the fact that we did nothing to earn it. If it was something that was given, that was established, that was a done deal before time, there was no human involvement in this. A human didn't craft it or have to to create it or maintain it. The grace is provided because of Christ's death on the cross in our place. Uh, John's Gospel says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The fact that this grace comes at the price of God's Son happened before time and was set and done. Uh, Yes, when we first believed on Christ, we were forgiven of our sins, and we felt clean and new. But you know, yesterday, or last week, or last month, when we let God down and sinned again, that grace is no less vital. There it was. The forgiveness had been uh, paid for through Christ's death on the cross. It had been a done deal before time began. Just like what happened... Well, we may go through next month or next year. We get surprised by what happens to us. God isn't surprised. Nothing can overwhelm that grace. Can't wear it out. The other thing that sort of suggested by the fact that it's before the beginning of time is that it's complete and permanent. We have been judicially pardoned for our sin. We've been declared righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Uh, one, One hymn writer put it this way, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So anything that I have through grace has nothing to do with how bad I am or when I was bad or, or when the failing was. It has all to do with the fact that God is satisfied to look on Christ's sacrifice and his payment and count me free. Gets me off the hook. Because of that, you know, it's not again. It's not something we experience too much outside of of uh, our relationship with God. It's just not a human thing to have that kind of forgiveness and love. Charles Ryrie, who um, was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, spent time working 
with underprivileged children and taking them uh, to a YMCA camp. Uh, they, would, they would take a group of children out and spend Saturday frolicking out in nature and you know, have a campfire and eat and then go home. As the program developed, those children that they felt could handle the responsibility, they would keep overnight. It was really a big deal to be one of the group that got to stay overnight and camp here at this camp while, while the others went home. But they were trying to reach these uh, kids for Christ. He talks about one Friday night when he awoke, startled by an unexplained noise, and he discovered that a few of the, the, uh, the leaders among the children that were staying there had snuck out of the dorm, gone down to the lake, launched one of the boats, and were having a great time far from shore. Well, not only was this against every rule in the book, it was dangerous. The kids knew, I knew, when the kids knew, I knew where they were, they came immediately to shore, like dogs with tails between their legs. They, they, came, up, they came in meekly and went back to bed, wondering what punishment awaited for them in the morning. So he talks about stewing. He says sleep was impossible now, and he was stewing about it. And as he, he thought of this, uh, he had talked to them about forgiving one another just that night before. So as he paced the ground, sort of wondering what to do about these, he thought, if I don't give them some punishment, then they'll never be impressed with the seriousness of what they've done. I have a responsibility to the YMCA to enforce their rules and punish violators. But the more he debated with himself, the more the Lord kept bringing to his mind aspects of God's grace. So he would say on the one hand, but Lord, I can't forgive them. They don't deserve it. Then he would think, well, but neither did I. I didn't deserve forgiveness. But Lord, I have to enforce the rules. Then it would occur to him, well, I'm glad you didn't enforce the rules on me. But Lord, if I'm too kind, the kids will think I'm weak. Then he would think, well, I never thought God was weak, only loving. But Lord, I'll make a promise never to do something like this again, then I'll forgive them. But it's a good thing you never made, required that of me, or I would never have been forgiven. And then he finally, before giving in, he thought, but you're God, you can do anything. And the thought that came to his mind was, you're my child, he said, imitate me. So in the morning he told the kids, you did a terrible thing. Could have had disastrous consequences for yourselves, for your families, for this whole ministry, for the YMCA camp, and for me. But I forgive you unconditionally and completely. You're kidding, they said. There's got to be a catch somewhere. No, you're fully forgiven. Then I told them what the Lord had been saying to me that night about his grace, how I wanted them to have another taste of that grace. I didn't even make them do cleaning up that day. I did it, did it myself because I didn't want them to think they could even earn a little bit of that forgiveness. The rest of the story, he said, as long as those kids were in the camp coming to that program, they followed them around like puppy, like puppy dogs and uh, were good as gold, good as kids can be. But um, his, his point was that's just not 
an interaction between people that you see humanly very often. This is unique with God. So I'm free because of that, because I have this forgiveness. No sentence of death. I have no guilt, only conviction when I do things wrong, because now I've hurt the Lord. I've, I've offended him. He, I've already been forgiven. I'm free of the ju- judicial punishment, but I need to get back with him. But I have no more slavery to my old nature because of grace and to sin. I'm no longer dead, but I'm alive in Christ. I'm a new creation, a child of God, free to love him, free to be eternally grateful to him, free to worship him, and free to serve him. And that comes through grace. Now, as I was reading this, thinking about this morning, I thought, well, this is kind of Christianity 101. And here Paul's writing to Timothy, who's not a brand new Christian. Here's a a guy who's been a Christian for a, a long while, was uh, seemed to have it together enough to be involved in this full-time ministry of Paul, going into these cities, going up against persecution, up against having Jews follow them who are looking to kill them. And he did this for 20 years. Went on his own as Paul's emissary to three different churches to set them straight on doctrine, to, to get things right. This guy is not a novice believer. And yet Paul's talking to him about these basic things. And I know many of you are not brand new in your walk with Christ. But when it comes to transitions, Paul is saying this is a key idea, this notion of grace. And the other ideas that he brings up. And he said uh, these are things we've got to keep a grip on because they are the truths that will Help us when other things around us get uncertain, when other things are things we can't rely on around us. You know, we're recipients of God's grace. Paul also says in chapter 1, and uh, just a little before that section, starting in verse 7, that we're recipients of God's Spirit. He tells Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed. And then he goes on and ends up saying, but join me in suffering. The fact that we've got God's spirit, and Paul really kind of gives a very robust idea of what the spirit brings when he comes. A spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Uh, that means that when, we're at, when God asks us to do something and we say, well, I can't do that, makes that kind of an irrational answer. Because God's come with the power, and he says that's what you have. And we can say, well, okay, you tell me to love my neighbors myself, but you don't, you don't know my neighbor. But God comes and gives us a spirit of love, the love of Christ shed abroad in our heart the power to to step up and do the right thing. Even the spirit of self-discipline is not really... Power's exciting, love's exciting. Self-discipline, that sounds like like work. Sounds like things I don't like to do. 
but we have the Spirit that allows us to do things we don't like to do. And that's not an easy thing to do. I remember uh, hearing a guy speak. I, I went to a Bible college many years ago, but I remember one of our, our speakers was, uh, was saying, do you, know how to, you want to know how to become a disciplined person? Wow, that sounded great. Not many people can say that. So I sat for him. I said, I'm taking these notes. I'm getting the, I'm getting the information. And he said, make it a practice to do things you don't like to do. I felt a little let down. That it doesn't sound as much fun as it first did. Uh, but that's what discipline is and following up on what God says. But we have that spirit. That's been given to us. We don't have to gin that up to do what God tells us to do. It doesn't mean that we're now super people with unlimited stamina. There are times when we don't have any more strength or we're burned out, completely exhausted, emotionally drained, or even really suffering with a, a, a depression or worse. That still happens. Those are real experiences. But it does mean that since we have that spirit, we can do what God asks of us, even in that condition. Not because we become strong as much as he gives us strength. He wants us to be dependent. He provides everything. He's given us the free choice because we have a new nature. Uh, He's given us the spirit of power. He's given us God's love shed abroad in our hearts to... In in this context, he's telling Timothy to don't be ashamed of the gospel and stir up the gift that's in you to build up the body of Christ. And he's given us his love as motivation to do those things. He gives us the plan. He lays it out for us. Uh, In Ephesians, he talks, let the person that steals steal no more, but let him work with his hands, the thing that's good, so that he can give to the one who has need. It's in Scripture there, what we need to do, step by step. So we have the plan. We have the example of Christ's life. And beyond that, the lives of his disciples, and as, as well as the stories of the faithful from the Old Testament that went on and persevered and did what God wanted them to do. We have his presence. So kind of what's left is go do it. You know, there's another mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. The context is the good deposit, the pattern of sound teaching that's part of the Spirit's work. It says, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That Holy Spirit keeps us in the center of God's truth. He's there to teach us all things. He's there to help us guard the deposit of the pattern of sound teaching that Timothy heard from Paul firsthand. And you know, we get to have it firsthand too because Paul wrote 13 letters. Other authors of Scripture uh, wrote and God made sure that text was inspired. We have all of that writing, all of that teaching Well, Paul's last thought, the, th- the third thought, uh, and the last one I, I want to work on is, a, is another sort of emphasized 
thing in this book about what God provides. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, you know, he's encouraged Timothy about grace, the nature of grace. He's encouraged Timothy about the spirit that we have, uh, that Timothy has, reminding him about that, the spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. And now he is encouraging Timothy at, because of the Lord's faithfulness. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. Again, Lystra is where he got stoned. That's always an incredible story to me. But um, So it stands out, Paul thought it was worthy of mention in connection with the Lord's faithfulness here. Persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Every single one the Lord rescued Paul from. His closing words of the letter to encourage Timothy uh, talk about the Lord in 4, 16 through 18. He says there, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. He's talking about his defense at Rome, where he's being put on trial. He says, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not just Paul, and that's his point to Timothy. It's not just Paul that God's faithful to. He is faithful to all who belong to him. And uh, we can go back to Matthew when Christ, just before his ascension, talked to his disciples gave them what's called the Great Commission. And he said, uh, in part, Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. David captures this beautifully in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He isn't fearing evil because... He isn't able to, to uh, have confidence walking through the shadow of death because of some great thing that God's given, but it's God's presence that David looks forward to in that. And that's God's faithfulness to us. It's more than just a presence. There's a, a relationship to it. There's a section in in the book of 2 Timothy there, in chapter 2, in verse 13. It's kind of a, it seems to be a quote that Paul is pulling up, either a, a hymn that was noted or something, but it's written in poetic stance. It's difficult in that it, um, uh, some people are cons- aren't sure they understand exactly uh, what it's getting at, but we would just, I just want to look at the last phrase. If you want to Talk about the challenges of understanding that that whole little poetic section. I'll be happy to talk to you some other time. Just couldn't couldn't be part of this message. But uh, it 
it really is a, a, a very helpful and useful little piece of teaching. But the last sentence of it is what I wanted to focus on. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. You know, that faithfulness, again, this is beyond what we know and understand in our human experience and the relationships we have. Now, the closest I think we come is good old mom. I mean, a mother loves always. Uh, Even the best of mothers, though, is human. And God's faithfulness just never, ever shifts. And if mom was a little more human, as some of ours might have been, God here steps forward and says, I will be faithful. Uh, We read that uh, the mercies to us are new every morning. What does he mean when he says that? Again, it's kind of a poetic thing. What he's saying is the mercies never run out. The mercy that God wants to show us never... It's like you wake up in the morning and it's like a, a big brand new set of mercies. Everything is... All mercies are possible. And though we go through the day and we sort of use some mercy here and there, and, uh, but it, God never says, oh, you've used your quota, you're done. It's, it's always new. There are many days I need that message um, because I feel more faithless than faithful in response. But it doesn't matter whether I'm faithful or faithless. God never changes. He's always looking at me with eyes of love. When I blow it, I really feel embarrassed. Because I think, how could I do that? Worse, how could I do that again and again? I feel defeated, empty, and sad. I've let myself down, so I'm more apt to avoid God Kind of like when you're a little bit estranged from a friend and there's an awkwardness. But the whole point of God's faithfulness, never leaving us, the mercies are new every morning. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. So, we, we can come to God with um, and ask for wisdom and not have him think, well, you know, I told you this before. We've been down this road before. You know, raising teenagers, when Julie and I did, you know, you, you give them advice and then they go do what they want to do and then they come back and they want to complain to you about how bad things are now. And you just want to say, but I said, if you did this, you'd avoid all this. Do you remember? But God, it says God doesn't, doesn't do that. But even if I feel estranged with God, and this, I, I can't, I have a difficult time getting over this. Uh, the grace is there for me. The mercies are fresh at that moment. God would like nothing better than to have me come back to him. But I think I have trouble getting over the hurt to my own pride that I fell. 
that I couldn't handle it, that I did it again. And it takes me a while to say, you know, it is right. I have nothing to contribute here. I'm not really bringing anything to the table. I'm not the nice guy I think about in my head who, this is a guy God can really use. I'm not a guy God can use unless God chooses to use, and he does. And he provides it all, faithfully and without tiring. You know, that word faithfulness always catches me on one particular verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think, you know, it isn't always faithfulness that I think about as being the thing that... um, the character of God that would lead to forgiveness. I would think it would be his love. He's loving and merciful to forgive us our sins. But how faithfulness comes in is his commitment. He has said, I will be faithful. And justice comes in because God says, I will look on him and pardon you. So just like grace and the power and the love and the self-discipline that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We don't know as much about faithfulness as we need to. We hear this, God's faithful. It's hard to embrace that in real time. Paul seemed to have a grasp on it. And he wanted Timothy to have a grasp on that. And he wants us to get a grasp on that. Because those are the bedrocks that will help us in any transition, any difficulty. Every other relationship we have is affected by what we do. But God does not change, nor does his offer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith, and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.